So basically, the sisterhood is asking Jessica to only produce a female heir. But what do we know about sex? It's inherently on the sperm to impart that information, right? So how is Jessica supposed to control whether or not she's going to have a female or male offspring? How are you supposed to control what sperm are approaching your oocyte and then get accepted so I went down this rabbit hole reading about it, and I read an article in the Scientific American, but it brought up this really interesting phenomenon of cryptid female choice. All decks, prepare for hyperdrive. Activate track to me. 60% hyperspeed. You're ready for light speed? No, 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 light speed is too slow. All right, reality check. The signs of fiction. All right, everybody, welcome back to another incredible episode of Reality Check. Today we have with us Dr. Sophia. And Dr. Sophia is a geneticist. And this is so perfect because today we are talking about Dune. And specifically, we're talking about the Bene Gesserit Order and some of the incredible things that they can do. The Bene Gesserit Order are one of the most powerful beings in the Dune universe. And some of the things that they are doing really are tied in with genetics. Sophia, tell us a little bit more about your background in genetics and just give us a little rundown of who you are and what you do. Sure. Happy to. I am Sophia Pragastis. I went to the University of Colorado Boulder for undergrad, and then I went on to the University of Utah and got my PhD out of the lab of Carl Thummel. I worked in the inheritance of metabolic disorders, and we specifically were investigating Drosophila, which share a lot of the same genetic building blocks and metabolic building blocks as human beings do. And it's a much simpler system in which you can study obesity, diabetes, and so that's where I got my start. And now I'm actually a postdoctoral researcher at Regeneron. And I've transitioned. I'm still studying human genetics and how variants impact iron homeostasis and metabolism. But I've expanded into mice and human genetic and genomic analyses. Wow, that sounds like very, very heavy, heavy content there. That's so exciting. So tell me a little bit of your, just your initial thoughts with Dune and the Bene Gesserit. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you're giving me some free reign here. I've only watched the movie. I really appreciated the film. I thought it was beautifully done. One element that I really liked about it was the sounds of all of their helicoptery type flying apparatus. And that's actually because they used real recordings from insects. They used insect wing sounds on all Stop of their- it. I did not no, know that's... that. We're just a few minutes in and I'm already, my mind is being blown already. <laughs> I know. So that's one of the first things that I noticed about it. I, I really appreciated the cinematography, the sound. I liked the storyline a lot. But one thing that never really made sense to me was actually sisterhood and the order. I didn't really understand their role or why they were so angry about Paul and why they were like, Jessica, you weren't allowed to have a son. And I was like, what is this? And it was a short little drop into the film. And you're like, okay, weird witch order is mad moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fine. But then when I started reading into it more, I was like, this is so cool. They really could have expanded on this and made it better in the film. Disappointed now. But yeah. 
So the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood came to be after the fall of the machines 10,000 years prior to the setting of the film Dune. And they started emphasizing human potential through selective breeding and then environmental conditioning and training. And basically, once technology had failed the society, they decided that they were going to hone human ability and breed people to have what would appear to be superhuman skills. Mm -hmm. And this explains why Jessica, Paul's mom, is able to do all these wild and crazy things. And they're supposed to be able to control themselves physiologically and molecularly to a level where they would be able to perform superhuman feats, like be able to tell if somebody's lying to to you, be able to move very rapidly, and have what would appear to be like magical characteristics, but they're which is so, so yes. interesting. It's just there that's just so much to unpack already. And Bichio Cacao, who is a theoretical physicist, I think you might be getting that book in the mail soon. He wrote a book called The Future of Humanity. And one of the most interesting things he says in his book is he highlights the fact that if you go back far enough in human history, and if you were to introduce any of the technologies that we have now, that they would seem like magic to ancient people. And he says it's the technologies that will be available far in our future will seem like magic to modern day people now, but it's just science. And I'm really excited to unpack how much of some of these Bene Gesserit powers are theoretically possible through genetic manipulation and what is stuff that we just have no idea right now. But I also laugh at just because it's like one thing when you're talking about genetics is you have to look at it on such a large scale that it's on. And I laugh when you think about where Dune takes place is 10,000 years in the future after the fall machine, the fall of the machines. So if we're looking at society right now, it's you are here. We're more like iRobot. Give it yeah. another 10 years and we'll be at Terminator. Give it another 10,000 years and we'll be at Dune. So if you look at sort of chronologically science fiction, Dune takes place, I think, the farthest in the future of all of the sci-fi concepts that are rooted in sort of our own human reality. So when we think about genetics, it's like we can't be thinking about it on the scale of, oh, these technologies are being developed 10 year or 50 year span. We're talking about thousands of years. And that's the really fun thing about science fiction. And that's part of the reason why some of these great science fiction, science fiction writers like Frank Herbert predict where things are going to go or what could be feasible in the future. Jurassic Park was incredibly accurate considering where science was at the time of its writing. And I know this episode is not about that, but it's incredible to read it now as a modern day geneticist and talk about cloning of dinosaurs and be like, wow, he was really pretty spot on. Some things are wrong, but the fact that he made all of this up and as a writer was able to extrapolate that far into the scientific field is so crazy to me. And Michael Creighton was just a genius, in my opinion. He And he was also, he went to med school, so he wasn't completely inept with science. He was well-versed right. in the sciences, but I'm going to take a moment of shameless self-promotion. We are doing an episode on Jurassic Park, and we are in interviewing another geneticist, and that is actually going to be episode one of Reality Check. So if you haven't listened to that one, you can go back and check that out. 
If you're interested in hearing more about what Sophia just mentioned in the plausibility of dinosaurs. So ended. I am not that episode. I'm just oh, but dude, I'm it's I'm so really good. I'm really excited. No, I am excited. Thank you so much. So yeah, like you can't mention science fiction and feasibility at the future without mentioning Michael Crichton, because that is such a good example. That might have seemed really wild and crazy at the time, and now it's just like, yeah, we cloned sheep. That's 80s work. Moving on. And now one thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read this, who knows, on BuzzFeed or something, but scientists were inspired by his work, and scientists are often inspired by the work of science fiction. I hear this all the time. I follow a lot of things that NASA puts out. And you hear a lot of these engineers who are designing system, AI systems, and they're like, yeah, I really liked the concept of HAL in Space Odyssey. And I just wondered if we could build a machine like that. So when I was a little kid, I was inspired by that. And now I'm a brilliant scientist who has created this technology. I can't really speak to that. I see, I completely see your point. I think the important thing about being a scientist is always recognizing where you can push the boundaries. And for example, I had these meetings with a scientific developer who's trying to develop these new metabolic tools for me. And they basically asked me to describe what would be most useful. And I just went way off the wall and described, this is what I would want in a perfect world. He said, it's not attainable. And I'm like, I understand that, but that's what I want. So if that's what you're shooting for, that's where we need to go, because that's what I want. So I can totally see how science fiction would provide that layer of imagination and next level thinking, but that is definitely a rooted part of being a scientific thinker. It's not about where we are now, it's about where we want to be next. Which is interesting to think about because Dune does take place very far in the future after the fall of machines, after we've tried AI and that did pan out. Instead of building these machines that will do the work for us, let's enhance ourselves. So let's jump in a little bit to some of the genetics. And I'm really curious about with the Bene Gesserit, their whole thing is genetic manipulation through the timeline, through this specific breeding program. And at the end, they're trying to produce this superhuman who has these powers and capacities, who's going to be their leader and savior in a lot of ways. Where are we at right now with that? Because I know that we have dogs that are not wolves. So at some (laughs) level, we have done that. We do have natural preferences with breeding. But where does that line sort of get drawn with breeding specifically for genetic outcomes? That's an interesting question. And that does touch on the topic of eugenics and generating a master race. This has not, this is not a novel concept. This is something, and I think this is part of the reason why Dune and the Bene Gesserit sisterhood would be a bit triggering for listeners because we've all heard this concept of creating like a perfect superhuman and it's not a novel concept to breed animals to make them the best performing racehorses or working dogs or something like that that they can be. Now, as far as eugenics go, it's it's important to realize that eugenics is based in very not a very professional science realm. It's a lot of racially antiquated 
facts that came into play. And one important point that I do want to touch on is actually the T4 euthanasia program in Germany. So the Nazis are a famous example of individuals that tried to achieve a master race and thought that this was a feasibility. And the T4 euthanasia program was actually started in 1939 by Hitler. This is pre the Jewish genocide the Nazis actually targeted individuals with disabilities, either physical or mental disabilities, and they targeted these individuals and considered them useless to society and actually implemented a euthanasia program and ended up killing over 250,000 individuals in this program. Now, that's incredibly dark. And it's important to note because this euthanasia program actually gave rise to the gas chambers and everything that they used in World War II in the Holocaust. So this was the stepping stone to the Holocaust. Now, real real quick, what is the technical definition of eugenics? Because I understand what it is conceptually, but I don't know what its exact definition is and what's the difference between eugenics and something that's not eugenics, but is similar. That's a really good point. And I literally just Googled it because I was like, I'm not sure. Okay, it's a hard question. So eugenics is very human-focused, so we're talking about breeding the human population. So eugenics could never be used in the term of animals? I don't believe so. And it was developed eons ago. It's an increasingly discredited and unscientific theory that we can breed desirable, heritable traits in human populations. And I think that's the most important point. And that's any geneticist's like worst nightmares when you start having to have the eugenics conversation. And it's like the ability to breed desirable traits. I think it's a really hot topic right now to talk about designer babies and the option to use IVF to select embryos with specific traits. I'm not saying that it's not scientific feasible, feasibly possible for you to do so and select an embryo that might have certain traits that you would want. I want my child to be athletic. I want them to be taller than average. I want them to have a certain hair color or eye color. I do think that this is something that could become feasible within our future, but it starts getting into the moral aspect of what is truly right and wrong and morally apprehensible within the world. And then also- And you do see- people doing that already, like without the IVF being involved is, I even remember in high school, I remember talking to a really short girl and she was like, I will only date tall guys because I need to give my children a chance at being tall. But people do already naturally select for, I hate to use the term breeding because it's so sterile, but it's people do choose mates based on traits that they find more desirable for their future offspring, not purely on how good of a partner is this person going to be they do choose people based on is this person going to produce desirable offspring with me oh yeah and attractiveness is something that's very personal but also inherently biological on some levels where there was a really interesting study i'll see if i can find it after we finish this episode but there was a study about the punchability of somebody's face basically and it was like you're kidding that was a real study it was a real study and that wasn't the main takeaway but the takeaway was like there are people who have less strong 
bone structure in their faces. So let's say weaker jaws, less prominent cheekbones, and they just look like a less intense human being. You are biologically predisposed to trust that person less and to automatically dislike them because they look like a weaker human being. And you're like, if you're this person were to get me. punched in the face, I wouldn't expect them to... This is all subconscious, right? Okay. If this person were to get punched in the face, they're not going to be as intense of an adversary. And so they're not somebody that I might necessarily gravitate towards. Wow. No, it's crazy when you start getting into a little... That was a lot and to I, unpack. Yeah, and that could be a whole episode in and of itself. We could go into the, the Twilight Zone episode where everybody looks the same and they all turn 16 and take a potion to look like one of four designer people. Lip injections and whatnot. But you were talking about this in the sense of eugenics and, and we in it's we tend to pick people who have traits that we might we may find desirable but it becomes a problem when we're trying to eliminate entire groups of people that have traits that we and i say we loosely as a population or a person or a scientist in this case hitler he found certain traits undesirable and he tried to eliminate them rather than just choosing someone based on his personal preferences. So I would argue eugenics is always a bad idea because there's a phrase in genetics, I think, I believe this is from the comedian Eddie Izzard, but it's always better to spread the genes apart. You want more diversity in your pool. You want more diverse backgrounds. You want a lot of different types of variants, at least I would think in a healthy population. So that you're better able to respond to all kinds of diverse situations and environments because you can't predict what's going to happen. For example, in a clonal population, Aspen, where you have one organism that's just sending up multiple trees, but it's all interconnected, or there's certain lizards that reproduce asexually, let's say. The genetics are all consistent between these aspen trees and then these lizards, if there's a disease that comes through or some sort of challenge that these lizards or trees are not adapted for, then you lose the entire population. But if you have genetic variation within the population that protects against this, you'll have survivor populations and these can give rise to new populations with new genetic diversity. So it's always good to have a lot of intermix intermixing and genetic influence and in my opinion, in populations. And so that's the weakness of eugenics, I feel, is that you're selecting for traits that you believe to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. But let's say in the Bene Gesserit model, they're selecting for individuals who are going to be able to control themselves on a molecular basis and on a physiological level. But there's got to be characteristics that they're overlooking within this population. You can't control for every single genetic inevit inevitability. And there's mm -hmm. going to be environmental chinks in that armor that could potentially be the downfall of your selective breeding campaign over centuries. And yes, so, so it's like they would choose, we want a trait where someone has exercises greater control over this but maybe those genes are also associated with they have a higher risk of this. Exactly. Cancer? Because I think I... 
Yeah, I think I even saw this in a dog dog breeding program. It was a documentary yep. I saw a long time ago. Is for it wasn't dogs. It was actually foxes. They were breeding foxes to try and create a more docile, domesticated mm-hmm. fox. Mm-hmm. So they were selectively breeding for the more passive foxes. And after several generations, they started to see foxes that were more pup-like. So they had floppier ears, bigger eyes, and they generally were displaying more juvenile tendencies where they also had a other group that they were doing the opposite. They were selecting foxes that had more assertive traits. So they were picking them based off of the behavioral traits, but they also got physical characteristics that came along with it. The calm fox looked juvenile like babies and the more aggressive foxes had sharper features, pointier ears. And so I think that's to your point is that there are certain genetics that come with associations that may or may not be desirable. Yes, 100%. And I will definitely say if I'm buying a if I'm buying a puppy, I don't necessarily want a, pre- a purebred dog. I would much rather have a mutt because the likelihood of your mutt having hip dysplasia or all kinds of other inherited diseases is going to be a lot lower. It's not going to be impossible. And there's going to be some traits. Dogs in general have higher rates of cancer than other species. It's just, it's a good safety to get a lot more genetic influence and variation in there. And I think a lot of people think of genetic variation as being a negative thing, but there are genetic variants that are protective against certain things or add some layer of complexity to the situation that might end up improving fitness later. What what does it look like per se? Because worst example is inbreeding, which is the worst example of genetic variation. But if you're trying to create a more diversely genetic baby that may stand better chances of genetic resiliency, you would want to find someone who, a partner, who has a very different genetic makeup than you. I don't know. In my mind, that's just a road I would never go down. Like how to create the perfect genetic baby or like how to make the most diverse baby. And that wouldn't even come into consideration for me, my child planning. But but it sounds like eugenics can go both ways for trying to create one specific type of baby that's too genetically not varied. And then also trying to create a genetically diverse baby. It's the genetic manipulation can be bad both ways. I agree with that 100%. And I think that obviously that's why eugenics is such a controversial topic and it's such a negative, morally apprehensible activity. We can't be playing God. We don't know what is best. The Bene Gesserit sisterhood doesn't know what is best. They went through a selective breeding campaign to breed all the most prominent families in the science fiction world to create that messiah that you were mentioning. But I'm just trying to poke holes in that argument and be like, no, just because you think you've accounted for every single inevitability genetically, the environment is always going to change. The one thing that you can count on is change. And you're not going to be able to respond on a genetic timetable rapidly enough to, in my mind, make a mis- like a superhuman like that. But getting back to the movie, one of the one of the th- biological plots that I thought was most interesting was the fact that the sisterhood asked Jessica, Paul's mother, the main character's mother, 
to, not to produce a son. They specifically asked her to produce a female. And their whole line with their sisterhood is that the women in this sisterhood or this order are able to unlock more genetical advantages than the men. And they're able to take a truce-sayer drug or poison. And through this poisoning experience, during which the priestess will control her molecular architecture to the point where she can survive the poisoning, through this traumatic experience, she can unlock the maternal side. But they need a man. I, I don't really understand this plot hole, but they need a male heir to unlock both the maternal and the paternal side and get these maternal and paternal memories that have been implanted through several generations. So basically, the female priestesses are able to unlock maternal memories through several generations, whereas a male messiah would be able to unlock maternal and paternal memories, mm -hmm. and then also the future memories, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Or just... Yeah, and that's where Paul falls into play, and it's like... Yeah. That's yeah, it was, he wasn't supposed to exist. He was supposed to be yeah. a girl, and he was supposed to inevitably fall in love and marry another character, which we're not going to get into because that is going to be covered in Dune number two, which is coming out really soon. And I don't know if they're going to stay true to the books or if they're going to change it up a little bit, but that ends up, I guess this is a little bit, I don't know, it's in the books, but it's like that person who was supposed to be Paul's male partner and counterpart romantically yes. if he had been born a girl becomes his greatest adversary as a male because mm. the prophecy and it's just so dramatic but let's talk a little bit about hang on i those... wanted to talk about i wanted to talk about cryptid female choice and all of this because oh. okay i was on a I, there was a plan here so basically <laughs> the sisterhood is asking jessica to only produce a female heir but what do we know about sex and the biological process of generating either male or female or intersex offspring it's inherently on the sperm to impart that information right it's coming from dad so how is jessica supposed to control whether or not she's going to have a female or male offspring we're not alligators alligators can control whether or not they're having female or male offspring based on temperature but okay. we're not like that. How are you supposed to control what sperm are approaching your oocyte and then get accepted? That just seems insane to me. So I went down this rabbit hole reading about it, and I read an article in the Scientific American, and I can send you a link to it so you can share it in the show notes. But it brought up this really interesting phenomenon of cryptid female choice. And I really liked the overarching theme in this because it is a really interesting kind of social perspective where this sisterhood in Dune is, even though they're very powerful witches, they're in the background to this very patriarchal society and they're running the show from the shadows. They're not mm -hmm. in the forefront. They're not putting this whole itinerary out there for everyone to see. They're, they're casually bringing in their people, infiltrating these bloodlines, merging into these houses and then manipulating the genetics and creating selective breeding patterns through centuries to get to the end point of the final cross, which should be a female Paul to a male, which is, you just mentioned, Dune part two, his greatest adversary. And then that offspring from that cross is supposed to be the Quisette, her, her, the Messiah. 
What I think is super interesting here, is there any evidence of cryptoid, cryptid female choice in human beings? There is a really interesting phenomenon in comb jellyfish where the female egg nucleus does scream cerebral sperm, it appears, and may select a sperm that it pre- it prefers. So that's an interesting phenomenon in jellyfish. But we are not jellyfish. We are not jellyfish, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's an interesting phenomenon where there is some sort of oocyte screening event happening. And just because it's happening in simpler organisms doesn't mean it couldn't possibly be happening in humans. There has been one paper that's shown that human o- may allow sperm from certain individuals preferentially over other individuals. So there no may kidding. be some sort of chemical component here that would allow this Bene Gesserit priestess to control on a molecular level, maybe through chemical outputs, which sperm the oocyte is accepting. And I really liked that idea of cryptid female choice and these women taking back their power in this patriarchal male-dominated social structure and being able to generate this messiah that they are then going to use to control the future and the human empire. So that was one biological aspect I wanted to touch on Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, no, I have heard that women for family planning. Now, don't quote me on this because I just heard this from friends that are trying to have certain sex of babies, but male sperm swim a little bit faster, so they get to the egg quicker, whereas female sperm are a little bit smarter and they'll hang back. So depending on the time of the egg being dropped during ovulation, if the boy sperm get there too soon, they would die off before they have the opportunity to what do, what do you call it? Implanting the egg? <laughs> Seeding yeah, the egg. That's correct. But the female I, sperm, they hang back and wait. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I have no idea about female versus male sperm speed. It looks based off of a quick Google. You are totally right. So wow, maybe this isn't as crazy as it feels like it should be. Let us know in the comments what you guys think. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. I think the possibility of there being some sort of component that you would be able to on a molecular or cellular level, if you were like advanced enough to detect that you would be able to control the sex of your child. Pretty. And that goes back to my point with Michio Kakao's book is that a lot of the technologies 10,000 years in the future will seem like magic to us now, but it's just a new scientific discovery for them that that's commonplace and that is really interesting i'm glad you brought that up that was totally new information for me i just thought it was so cool i liked this female empowerment moment where it's cryptid female choice what is this i thought that was Mm -hmm. so interesting that is really insane the other interesting thing is how the benny jesserit are able to access genetic memory of mothers and grandmothers. And in the movie Dune, it's only these genetic memories can only be accessed through the female bloodline. So the male memories are lost. But in humans, is there such a thing as genetic memory? Because I do hear in more of the spiritual world where we can have trapped emotions of our ancestors and we can feel feelings from our ancestors that are 
we can have emotional reactions to things we've never experienced. Can you talk to me a little bit about genetic memory? I can try. So I'm going to start this from the genetics perspective because I am not a neuroscientist and I'm not an expert on memory formation, retention, or degradation, or anything like that that's very focused on neuroscience. So it would need like a separate expert. But what I will tell you is that there are definitely studies that have indicated that there are changes within a human being outside of just changes to your DNA sequence that can impact your metabolic state. They can impact your mental state, for example, anxiety. And these are called epigenetic regulations. One famous example of this is DNA methylation. And it's not just limited to DNA methylation. There's other kinds of factors that can epigenetically regulate your genetics, but these are changes that can be inherited through multiple generations out of outside of just your basic DNA genetics. And there's some famous examples of these stories in human beings related to metabolism, such as the Dunk Dutch hunger winter famine. During I've even heard of that one. Oh man, it gets dark pretty quick, and I'm sorry, there are a lot of dark stories in genetics, but basically during the Dutch hunger winter, there were individuals who were kept within prison camps under Nazi rule, and they there were pregnant women within these camps, and unfortunately, the Nazis kept very meticulous records of the exact rations individuals were receiving, so we have information about calorically what these mothers were taking in. And we know that these individuals were under caloric restriction. So they were in starvation rations. They were taking in less than 800 calories a day. And then when wow. you look at their offspring, those offspring tend to be predisposed to developing type 2 diabetes and obesity. And the general hypothesis is that epigenetic changes that took place within the mother informed the embryo that there was this famine environment and that you needed to be able to respond to that environment so that when the embryo came out and it's a little child and it's developing, it would expect to be in an environment where it was going to need to be able to store as many nutrients as quickly and reliably and as energy efficiently as it could, hence the development of type 2 diabetes and obesity. Wow. So does this, this epigenetics a- only, does it only happen when there's a fetus in utero or can it happen no. through generations? No, it can happen through generations. There's another really interesting Swedish study where they looked at the risk of cardiovascular defects and metabolic and metabolism intake and nutrient intake in grandfathers. And this kind of gets into an interesting line of mode of inheritance where they did see effects all the way into the F2 generation. So you have the parental generation that has the exposure. You have the next generation, which is the F1. And then you have the second generation, which is the F2. So grandpa, parents, and then children. And they did see deferential effects in, I believe it was in the grand paternal maternal fashion. So it's following a complex mode of inheritance, which actually going grand paternal to maternal 
And that's the mode of epigenetic inheritance that's occurring in those studies. So I, I did want to bring that up, and I'm glad you asked about it. Because it's not cut and dry like they present in Dune. You're not necessarily just going to be able to unlock your maternal memories because you're a woman. I would expect it to follow a more complex mode of inheritance just based on biology. And I will say that transgenerational inheritance is fly in flies is something that I did study. And we were able to see metabolic impacts from the parental generation into the F2 generation, but again, following that grand paternal maternal fashion. So a complex so, mode of inheritance. Interesting, because I don't think about a lot of variation between flies. To me, they're all so similar. That's no interesting that you could even really go, oh, yes, this fly is so much different than this fly. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different things you can do. Flies become obese. It was always my goal to generate a walk, a fly that was too fat to fly. Never no. achieved that. <laughs> I wanted to be able to achieve a fly that was so fat that it would not be able to lift off. But the problem with flies <laughs> is that they are they are constrained by their exoskeleton, right? They have that hard cuticle layer, unlike us. We're fleshy, we're movable, we're expandable. In flies, as you put on adipose tissue, it just squishes all the organs mm -hmm. up into different cavities within the fly, and you reach a maximum growth outwards. But yeah, so there's definitely examples of is that, that go multiple generations past the exposure, be that dietary or even genetic exposures. Joe Nadeau, who actually just recently attended a conference with in Greece, he's a major player in this field, and I was really inspired by his work, and it was actually what we based our fly work off of. But they've been able to show a similar pattern in mice where they had a genetic variation in the first generation, and then so they had a homozygous in, a mouse in the first generation that had two copies of this genetic variant, right? And then the second generation, they have one copy and you see, you still see the phenotype. But then in the third generation, they don't have any of the variants. They're genetically identical to a normal mouse and they still have metabolic predispositions towards the disease state like their grandparents did. So even though they don't, they haven't inherited this genetic change, there's still this predisposition towards your grand paternal state oh, yeah that and so really i feel like that just exposes a lot of generational problems because when you look at something it's that's not just your generation's issue it's these consequences it sounds like these consequences bleed into our children and our children's children and if america had issues with obesity 50 years ago they're going to be compounding issues each generation i would agree with that but there's also this weird phenomenon that I observed where it seems like if you're if you are optimized to be on a high fat high fructose diet let's say that's what your family has been eating for generations like the German diet for example okay they're eating a lot of carbohydrates they're eating a lot of fat there's a lot of beer there's a lot of pork heavy western diet you are going to be metabolically predisposed to be on that diet. And you that might honestly mm. be where you perform optimally. So I do That's put a really lot of powerful. stock. I do put a lot of stock on like 
you should look at your macronutrients. You should look at your micronutrients. You should be being aware of where your food is coming from, not eating heavily processed food or food with a lot of preservatives in it. But you should also be taking into consideration what is my ancestry. I try and eat a Mediterranean diet. My family's Mediterranean. I just, there's some foods I know I'm not going to do very well with just, I believe, and it's a hypothesis on based on genetic exposure. Yeah, and that's so interesting. I'm Sicilian and my family, I grew up eating spaghetti multiple nights a week and I don't, I'm blessed. I don't have an issue with carbs, but if I eat a low carb diet, I start getting shaky. I start feeling dizzy. I start feeling sick. And so I know I do not do well on low carb diets because I am Italian. We need to eat a lot of bread and a lot of spaghetti to just keep our systems going. And that could definitely be environmental. And some of that could be environmental. That's how you've been raised. That's how you've been conditioned. That's how your body has just gotten used to navigating the world. And that's how your body has gotten used to navigating its own glycemic levels throughout the day. But also there is definitely a genetic contribution here where it's you're coming from this long Italian background and you are predisposed to be optimized to eat this food. So mm-hmm. anyway, I went on a long tangent there about how epigenetics can regulate metabolic state because that's what I am familiar with. Mm-hmm. But and there is evidence that your epigenome can affect your aging memory. And so this is the concept that epigenetics can contribute to age-related memory decline. And so while epigenetic factors can be inherited through multiple generations, your epigenetics are not in a fixed state and they can actually fluctuate and change throughout your life. And there has been evidence that epigenetic changes can affect memory retention. And And real quick, that's every variable, right? I can change my epigenetics through everything environmental. My diet, my music that I listen to, anything that you expose yourself to can change your epigenetics. Is that correct? Oh, that's a bold statement to make. I don't know if I'd stand... (laughs) Scientists, and this was always kind of something that I feel like we butt heads with personally throughout our friendship, is scientists don't like to make... We don't like to be like, you can affect your epigenetics with anything. Can you affect epigenetics with your diet? Yes. Can you affect it with music? Probably, because you're going to affect your anxiety levels, which could affect all kinds of other hormones that are secreted from your brain and regulate all kinds of factors. It seems like a pretty safe statement to say that many factors can influence your epigenetics and that these changing environmental factors can alter your epigenetic state. And that's part of the reason why twins end up looking different later in life. It's different exposures that can lead to different epigenetic regulations. And there's been really interesting studies that have shown that changes in your epigenetics can affect your memory retention as you age and also like how well you actually recall things or how memories are formed. There's several different steps in forming a memory. There's actually making the memory, recalling the memory, retaining the memory, and all of these can be affected by different epigenetic factors. At the end of the day, though, the what I feel like is really important is the memory has to be formed. You have to have experienced the memory in order to have these epigenetic or epigenomic 
regulatory events impacting your recollection of the memory. So that was my issue with the movie Dune. I was like, okay, what is your idea then? What is Frank Herbert's idea for the epigenetic regulation or potential transgenerational regulation of memory within Mm -hmm. humans? But right before I hopped on this call, I was having a conversation with Greg, and he brought up a really interesting perspective that I hadn't considered. And tell our listeners, who's Greg? Sorry, Greg's my fiancé. Your fiancé. So, my fiancé, yes. So Greg and I were in the kitchen, we were making ourselves a snack, and I brought up this exact debate, and I was like, I just don't see how if you didn't have... I really like the idea conceptually. But I don't see how if you don't if you haven't experienced the memory, how you're supposed to remember that. And he brought up a really excellent point, which was about birds. You've heard that birds know migratory patterns without ever experiencing them. Mm-hmm. Or there are some other natural phenomenon in the animal kingdom where an animal doesn't need to be shown how to do something. It just knows. And on some level, I do believe that's probably true. And I do believe we as human beings, while we like to see ourselves as this really advanced species, we're not. We're just little ape bipedalists running around. We're slightly more advanced than our other Earth counterparts. (laughs) Creep chop. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's all kinds of memories that are locked down in there that we might just not understand how to access. I don't actually think that it's that extreme of an idea to think that maybe there could be a way to unlock ancestral memories. And I've always really enjoyed the conspiracy theory. This is my personal conspiracy theory that heebie-jeebie moments are some of those ancestral memories that are so locked down. They're so primal that it's just an automatic nope from your body, your nervous system. Nope, this is not a good situation to be in. I don't know what kind of cue comes in, but there's something. Have you heard, have you ever heard of the Uncanny Valley? Yes. So there's one theory. I'm not going to say it's a theory because it's not a real theory. It's not a scientific theory. It's a Reddit theory. (laughs) I'll be honest. But it's, uh, it still gets me excited because I'm like, we don't like it. When we see something that's uncanny, it's, it gives us that reaction of that yuck reaction because it could potentially be a reminder of a past where there was something that's human, but not quite human, either Neanderthals or other human-like species. There are people talking about it could be aliens that look like us, but they're not quite us. And that's why the Uncanny Valley is something that's used so much in horror movies. If someone's smiling when they shouldn't be, it's that uncanny Mm -hmm. feeling of it's just Mm -hmm. not quite right. It's just not quite human. Mm -hmm. And it could just be that residual memory that, hey, there's other things out there that aren't human, that look human, but it's a threat. So we feel that yuck when we see something, a face that's the Uncanny Valley. I agree. And maybe that Uncanny Valley is more of that primitive subconscious brain coming out, just like you said. One kind of major plot hole that I wanted to bring up with this whole Bene Gesserit mission is you're trying to control so many different aspects to create this messiah and this perfect individual that's going to be able to see both the past and the future. But you cannot control 
how flawed human beings are. Hence why we end up with Jessica having a son, Paul, when she should have had a woman or a daughter. She should have known that this mission is way beyond her or her line or anything that her husband might want and that the greater mission, which has been in place for centuries for them, is to get to this final cross. We're one generation away and yet she messes this whole storyline up to a degree. But she so fell in love with the Duke. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> See, that's exactly it, though. Humans are flawed. So that's the first flaw. Like, can we actually, could a theoretical super race exist? Probably not, because humans are. And secondly, I really liked the, this is from, crap, what's his name? What's his, what's the name of his videos? Quinn. Quinn's Ideas. Voice. Oh, yeah. Quinn's Ideas. Okay. That's another YouTube channel that's really yummy if you want to hear more about Dune or really any other nerd stuff. He did a phenomenal job breaking down Dune. But one of the conspiracy theories that he brought up that I really liked or kind of plot holes in all of this is we're making a superhuman that's going to be able to remember all of the past, both maternal and paternal, and also the future and then we're going to try and control that individual that is a plot. <laughs> yeah I, I just we... wanted to bring up that ultimate plot hole and yeah eugenics is a very icky topic it's not a good road to go down and i don't think as human beings we are capable of understanding the environmental and genetic impacts that are constantly changing and evolving in order to ever manipulate them in a way that would be better than nature. It's definitely an interesting phenomenon, and I think Frank Herbert was ahead of his time, and I really liked his idea of cryptid female choice and potentially epigenomic, like, ancestral memory formation. So, in general, very interesting. (laughs) It's so interesting, and I think that's one of my fascinations with the Bene Gesserit Order as truly one of the most powerful beings in this universe is that they're they're controlling something so much deeper it's they're not like some of the houses that are just controlling the world through raw power and force they're they're really sneaky and thinking about eugenics it's yeah you brought up so many points that it's like it Every other time it's ever been tried, it goes bad really fast. But I just feel as a human race, the idea is still so attractive to us that we can... It's because we want to play God. But at the end of the day, the question is always, should we? It's not, could we? Should we? With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben. It's (laughs) true. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting talking points with Dune, but I think it's also a cautionary tale. And I do want to point out that this is a little bit of a bummer, but Dune was published during a time when birth control and sterilization were heavily promoted in non-white American populations. So mm-hmm. Frank Herbert was ahead of his time as a scientific science fiction writer, but also it is this whole concept of eugenics and creative this ultimate human being and superpower while Mm -hmm. fantastically interesting is socially insensitive yeah and that's just i think that's just an interesting thing to always be reminded of because someone like me my 
my whole mission is human performance is how can we make the human better and it's just such a grave reminder that don't play god but where is that line what is what yeah, does exactly. it look like for me to try and be the best athlete i can be you can talk about it from really anything that's survival of the fittest because the fittest wasn't meant like physical fitness it meant ability to survive and procreate so sometimes that meant physical beauty because the most yeah. beautiful were the ones breeding and yeah, also, sometimes it was physical fitness so you could hunt and gather and, and live yeah and and just like you said so long as you're reproducing that's fine it's like a butterfly right a butterfly lives for one day but so long as it can mate during that one day that's fine best day of its life i think about where does that line fall between playing God and just trying to experiment with advancing and enhancing ourselves. Because in another episode this season, we talked about augmenting soldiers and we're talking about things like prosthetics and things like implants where we can enhance our vision. And there's so many things that humans are always trying to do to enhance ourselves. Where do you feel like that line is between exactly. human augmentation and enhancement and eugenics that could potentially devastate a population? I really can't speak to that. I am very passionate about drug development, and there are a lot of really fabulous gene therapies that are on the market or evolving right now in which we're able to edit somebody's gene to improve a disease state. That's very important research that I'm super passionate about. That line does get very complex very fast. It, to me, it's if you're improving somebody's life and moving them away from a disease state, I think that's wonderful. If we're talking about selecting characteristics based off of population preference, cultural preference, or the time period's preference, then I think that's incredibly problematic. If it's for... Mm -hmm aesthetic region reason but i just wanted to make the argument that you might think that you're picking the traits that will increase fitness or make this ultimate human but you can't foresee every inevitability and so as a result you will mess it up it's crap what's that michael creighton character who's he's always got the chaos theory it's the chaos theory yeah oh my goodness eric yes thank you it's the chaos yeah. theory so yeah, he's because you think about that. I think you just brought up such a great point there about what's going to be the preferred traits. We can't predict that because currently based on society, these certain traits might be more desirable, but that's not actually going to be better for humanity. If I lived in we, ancient China, my feet would have been way too big and they did things to try and change their feet. Certain Incas and Mayans would flatten their foreheads because that was the more desirable trait. And if we're trying to, like you said, play God and we're trying to force certain traits out of a population, those traits might fall out of favor a hundred years from now. Exactly. Or even on a shorter timetable, time we have no idea what pandemics are around the corner next or what kind of major climate change events could happen that might favor individuals. Let's say it's even something as basic as brown or blonde hair, like there could be a genetic predisposition in individuals with brown hair to handle heat better, let's say. And then global temperatures start rising and all of a sudden you've been selecting for blonde babies in your designer baby experiment and you don't have as many brown, red-haired children or whatever. That's a silly example. 
But that really gets me thinking because you think about where some of these things have naturally shown up through just nature. My understanding is that cystic fibrosis came from the bubonic plague because during the time of the plague, which lasted way longer than anybody realizes, I think it was like 200 years, right? I have Something no idea, like but I, I, I know it was right. way longer. It was longer, way longer yeah. than we think. And so cystic fibrosis is something that kind of came from plague times because people who had thicker mucus to begin with were surviving the plague because it wasn't necessarily the plague that killed you. It was dehydration. And so mm. people who were predisposed to thicker mucus survived. And that's why people of European descent are more predisposed to cystic fibrosis because their likelihood of having thicker mucus is so much higher. And I don't quite understand how genetic works, but that's something I've heard. And you have a similar example with sickle cell disease and exactly. how and malaria. Exactly. And that's more prone in people who have a African descent because those were regions where they developed a resistance to malaria naturally. And now it's becoming a problem with sickle cell. Yep, that's an excellent example. Or I study hemochromatosis, which is an iron overload disease. And there's a hypothesis that hemochromatosis is so prevalent. One in 10 Northern Europeans is a carrier for a hemochromatosis variant because having higher iron allows you to survive blood loss better. And what was the number one mortality event in the past childbirth so yeah. females with higher iron might be able to survive childbirth better so it just goes to show um, high iron can lead to the development of type 2 diabetes liver cirrhosis in older age probably past 30 years of age in males and then after menopause for females so that's an example of a trait that might not impact your sexual fitness necessarily but having it could be beneficial to you surviving some of these events, but also negative in that you could develop type 2 diabetes or wow. liver cirrhosis and damage. So it's just really interesting to see those trade-offs. So you might think, oh, it would be beneficial if we got rid of HFE variants, but then you don't know if having these iron are going to carry some sort of benefit or even a benefit in individuals who just carry one copy of the variant. Wow. So... That, that truly blows my mind. And I, I've always understood that, that eugenics was bad, but I never feel like I've had anyone explain it to me so thoroughly because I, I knew eugenics was bad. I knew that genetic variation was generally good, but to truly highlight, hey, look, we don't know what genes are going to show up to be beneficial or harmful down the road. You don't want to play God. You do want to let it naturally yeah. play out. And that's so interesting to me to think that what might be deemed as a genetic disadvantage today could be a massive advantage hundreds of yeah. years from now. And the important thing is it's always a changing landscape and we can't predict how the environment will change. We can try, but the one thing we can be certain of is that it will change. Yeah. That's a so difficult powerful. topic to cover. But so I fascinating. Know. And to really think about how the Benny Gesserit were doing this and hey, look, it didn't work out for them. So we're going to have our reality check moment here in just mm -hmm. a minute. So what do you think is out of our one to five scale, one being pure fiction, five being science fact, what is the plausibility of having the sort of directed 
evolution through human genetic manipulation? Where are we at on a one to five scale? So I think that's a difficult question. If you're just talking about directed evolution, could we do selective breeding? I think that's very plausible and that would be like a five. But if we add in these layers of complexity, like the cryptid female choice and the epic memory and ancestral memory element, then I feel like we go down to a 3.5 at the highest, where there's some very fantastical ideas here, but they're still rooted in this very basic genetic concept. Breeding different animal populations for a desirable trait is not novel, and farmers and breeders have gotten very good at this. I'm sure we could do it in humans if we wanted to. That doesn't mean it's morally acceptable to do or the right thing to do, as we just talked through, but it is feasible. I think it's more interesting to think about the elements of the ancestral memory recovery that make it so fantastical and so that's why i would give it a 3.5 yeah no and that's great answer and it's i think something to remember is farmers have something going for them that human directed evolution doesn't is they can control they can control what their animals are doing far easier than it is to control people there's the difference of free will. We have so much more opinions than a dog does. My dog is happy as long as he has food, water, and snuggles. And humans have Lady Jessica. She fell in love. She went against the orders. And that's something it's like, it sounds like we'll never really truly be able to control people because people will always have opinions. It's true. And even more so than falling in love, to me, I think part of it was ego. There was definitely a love component there from the storyline, but I think there was even more of an ego component. I could be the mother of this messiah-like figure who wouldn't want that. Of course, you're going to try and cut those corners. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's the chaos theory, right? Humans are flawed people and we will never overcome that. So in a perfect system, if there was like no free will, could you do it? Yeah, biologically possible to do selective breeding but morally apprehensible and then also when you incorporate free will impossible yeah wow genetics is something that is infinitely fascinating to me and it is really such an emerging field we didn't even get to touch on things like CRISPR today and that's something Mm -hmm. that i'm hoping to maybe get to on some other episodes because it's really truly an emerging science that is going to change it's going to change the face of our world I think that's just a fact. Would you tend to agree that our genetic understanding now is going to change the world? I definitely agree with that. <laughs> You're like, I would hope so, because that's why you got into it. And hopefully, again, we choose to change things for the, for positive. And we go the route of Uncle Ben and Spider-Man. We use our powers for good and not for bad. And that the scientists and the policymakers and the public interests, where the money's mm-hmm. going, is always going to be choosing to put our efforts towards positively advancing the human race and understanding the negative consequences. So with all that being said, is there any final thoughts before we sign off for the day? I think we've really covered it today. Eugenics is evil. Cryptid female choice is super interesting and a field that could have a lot more interesting developments in our future. Epigenomic memory is really interesting and also... We might think we know best, but we should play God. 
Oh, I love it so much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Reality Check. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting me, Heidi. It was nice to see you. 